It finally happened. The guys who were running First Energy at the time of the big bribery scandal have been charged. It's a subject we'll be going deep on on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Atassi. And before we get to the big indictments, I do want to say we would love to hear your thoughts or questions about the indictments or anything else we talk about. You can call us toll free at 833 648 6329. That's 833 OH today. Leave a message with your comment, leave your first name. We'll play it in a future episode. All right, Lisa, the folks in the U.S. Attorney's Office haven't done it yet, but Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost does not appear to make class distinctions in those he charges with a crime. Finally, what is First Energy former CEO Chuck Jones charged with involving his role in the biggest corruption case in Ohio history? along with his sidekick, Mike Dowling. Yeah, Jones and uh, lobbyist Mike Dowling were named in a 27-count indictment by a Summit County grand jury. They're accused of hijacking Ohio's regulatory structure to benefit the Akron-based first energy utility. Sam Randazzo is also named in this indictment. Attorney General Dave Yost uh, announced yesterday that they surrendered in Summit County and posted bond, but they first failed to surrender earlier in the day. They will be arraigned today. Charges include money laundering, grand theft, bribery, among others. And then also named in the indictment are two companies controlled by Sam Randazzo. This is the first time that state-level charges in the House Bill 6 scandal have been filed. Yost says he's focusing on the broader corporate and state relationship. He says it's about the hostile capture of a portion of Ohio state government by deception, betrayal, and dishonesty. And this, like I said, this also focuses on Randazzo's pre-PUCO work, but we'll be talking about that soon. It's just about time, right? I mean, we've, we've known the evidence for forever. And the company long ago admitted that it did the bribery. Larry Householder is sitting in prison after a jury convicted him of taking the bribes. And we've often asked, when do the guys who actually made the decision to provide the bribes, which are in the record as having been made, get held to account? And it's going to happen in state court. Yeah. So this is, and this is going to be very interesting. I, you know, like I said, we'll be talking about what Jones and, and, uh, uh, Randazzo and Dowling have said, of course, they say they're all innocent. But uh, Jennifer Thornton, who uh, is with the U.S. Attorney Southern District, she's a spokeswoman there. She says that Yost's announcement on, is on state charges only. She says the feds will continue to pursue justice in this case. Yeah, I, we have readers asking us all the time, what is taking so long? And and I've floated a couple times in my subtext account, do we have two standards of justice in this country for the wealthy and everybody else? And people come flying back at me saying, duh, does this surprise you? We see Adam Faris chronicles what goes through federal court every day. And we see cases get investigated and indicted very, very quickly this one has just taken forever and people are frustrated by it. We have other cases that we're still waiting for resolution on. We got the Akron Boutros case. We got the Brad Sellers case. And it does seem like if this were you or me, it wouldn't be taken this long. I, I think it's great that Dave Yost is tired of waiting and has taken them in. There needs to be justice for whoever perpetrated this fraud upon all of us in Ohio. Agreed. 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, what do Jones and Dowling say specifically about the charges? And try not to laugh as you <laughs> recount it. Right. Well, they, they didn't do anything wrong, Chris, according to them. So don't worry. <laughs> Jones is being represented by former federal prosecutor Carol Rendon, who's now an attorney with Baker, Baker Hostetler, right? She said Jones did not violate the law. He did not bribe anyone. He acted in the best interest of First Energy's customers as well as its employees and investors and never betrayed their trust. She said this is all a false and, un- and unfair narrative and that the facts will come out soon enough that will make it all clear. She said those facts will set the record straight and they're, they were going to restore his excellent reputation. Uh, Rendon also disputed an allegation that Yost made to reporters that both Jones and Dowling failed to make good on a promise to surrender themselves to authorities. She said that during the press conference, Jones and his attorneys were actually in Akron awaiting court instructions. She said he's going to follow orders from the court and attend his Tuesday, his arraignment today. So, and Dowling gave a statement too, through his attorney, John McCaffrey. He said the $4.3 million payment represented a final obligation of the company to Randazzo, who was a private actor at the time he got the payment in connection with a settlement agreement the company reached with Randazzo in 2015. McCaffrey said Dowling plans to prove his innocence at trial. So that argument is basically like, oh, this that this has nothing to do with that. This is from something old. <laughs> this is... Look, look I, 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 you're up against it when your own company said, yeah, we did it. And right. you've already they had... They already dimed somebody... them out here. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no... they've... They're going down. I mean, it's just one of those where, and nobody knows better than Carol Rendon that when you're in this kind of a jackpot, the only thing you do is make your best deal possible. Rendon was in the driver's seat of those deals. I mean, it's relentless when they have the evidence against you. And to take it to trial always gives you the worst possible outcome. She knows that. I mean, how do you fight a case where your own company said, yes, we did it. And we paid a whole lot of money as our penalty for it. And these were the guys that were in charge at the time. I, I wonder if they were caught short. You know, there's been a lot of buzz that they've been going back and forth with the federal prosecutor. It's taken forever and there's been lots of communication. Remember, their lawyers went into court a year ago and said they believed federal charges were imminent then. But I wonder if Yost charges came out of the blue and just caught them completely by surprise and it's humming a humming a humming the time. <laughs> that could be. I mean, this does seem, this is like the playbook for, for this kind of situation, though. Did, did we expect their attorneys to say anything other than there were there was no wrongdoing here? I mean, that's, that's always step one. Even if they end up agreeing to some kind of plea deal, it's still going to be well, you know. We'll we'll take we take a responsibility for X, Y, but not Z. So uh, that's how it goes. I don't know. I I think you could say if you're the attorney, let's remember until you're convicted, you're presumed innocent, and there's a long way to go in this case, and we'll see how it turns out. But to say right now they did nothing wrong, we'll throw that back in their face mm-hmm. at the end of this. It's like, wh- what happened to that, Carol Rendon? You said they were completely innocent. Mm-hmm. And that does harm your credibility as a human being. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One more on this. Sam Randazzo is indicted, as Lisa mentioned. And this indictment goes further than the federal indictment of him. Laura, what does this add to what we know about Randazzo's misdeeds? 
And it wasn't just this $4.3 million bribe that we've talked about that First Energy has admitted to. These new accusations say Randazzo was illegally skimming millions of dollars for himself from secret settlements in exchange for favorable treatment. So this was even before the uh, PUCO job, before he was in, you know, in charge of all the public utilities, uh, which became in 2019. So he spent years working for this Industrial Energy Users of Ohio. That's a nonprofit trade group. It's made up of large industrial and commercial users of electricity. You hear nonprofit and you think, they must be doing good work, but this is just sticking up for the people who use the most electricity. So when the electric companies, the energy companies want to charge more, you know, they have to go through the PUCO and Randazzo's group was helping arrange side deals so that they would drop their opposition to the higher prices in exchange for a payout. So in 2014, electric utilities, including First Energy and American Electric Power, paid I. EU Ohio, that group, more than $13 million to no longer object to that proposal. But according to this indictment, Randazzo skimmed 40% of it off the top, $5.4 million. And so like, it's like shadiness on top of shadiness, because not only is there a side deal with the biggest user to electricity saying, if you pay us off, we won't, we won't oppose it. And so the little guy who doesn't have a nonprofit fighting for him will pay more, but we'll get the payoff. But on top of that, he's taking money from that payoff. And this is the guy Mike DeWine put in charge of the Public Utilities Commission, in spite of being warned that he was an insider. He's never stood before Ohio and apologized for putting a crook in charge of the Utilities Commission. Here's the interesting thing about this case that I, I don't know that's been discussed. Dave Yost is running for governor in three years. The leading contender for that job is probably John Houston, the lieutenant governor, mm -hmm. who's been pretty cozy with First Energy over the years, never incriminated in this case. But for Dave Yost, every fact that comes out about the DeWine administration's tie to Randazzo is a nail in the coffin of John Houston's candidacy. And the closer he brings this case to the DeWine administration, the worse it is for John Houston. So Dave Yost is inspired here to be aggressive and push this case. That makes a lot of sense. But I don't think, I mean, we've known for years, the you know, Sam Randazzo was leading the PUCO and not sticking up for the people of Ohio. I am kind of still floored at just how deep this went and how far like he was cheating the cheaters according to this indictment because neither the IEU nor the law firm that he was working for at the time knew he was also getting paid by First Energy so he was getting millions of dollars from all sorts of directions um he had that same side deal with AEP he got another 1.2 million dollars off of a 9.9 .9 million dollar agreement in 2015 and this is the same guy who's claiming he's too poor to travel to Cincinnati for court. I mean, we're talking about stacking multi-millions on multi-millions. So where did all this money go? And where's the accountability of the administration that appointed him? At some point, you would think Houston and DeWine would have to stand up and say, we're sorry. We should never have put this guy in charge. And we are shocked and dismayed at what this guy did to the citizens of Ohio. They've never stood on the side of right. the citizens. And frankly, they keep pointing people to the PUCO who don't seem like they want to reform it. It's still a mess. 
And let's point that out, that this, we are talking about the citizens of Ohio, that all these millions of dollars we're talking about being skimmed off and stolen and, and you know, given for bribes, all of that was raising prices for energy for the regular people in Ohio. All of that was bloating our state government and contributing to gerrymandering and power struggles. And I mean, all of all of this, this is not just in a vacuum. This is hurting the very pocketbooks of the, the people of Ohio, the 11 million people who live here. Well, and Dave, yes, clearly isn't afraid to go after the well-heeled and powerful. And it's a credit to him that there's finally some justice that's going to happen in this case. Ohio will get a verdict. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did Ohio officials who gutted the power of the State Board of Education back down on their decision to move the board offices 16 miles away from downtown Columbus and away from all the education officials that they work with? Lisa. Yeah, the Ohio Board of Education will not be moving very far from their current offices. They will be moving their 70 employees in April from downtown Columbus to a site about five blocks away, about a half mile on the 20th floor of the William Green Building, which is at 30 East Spring Street. The superintendent of public instruction, Paul Kraft, wanted to stay close to the Department of Higher Education and the new Department of Education and Workforce, which are in a building at Broad and Front Streets downtown. Board members were puzzled why they have to move at all when they were told that that education building is not fully occupied. Uh, can you smell a, a conspiracy here? But anyway, Walt Davis, who is a board member from Cincinnati, says, why the urgency? Why do we have to move? We haven't really gotten a direct answer from the administration or anybody. Um, as you know, the Department of Education and Workforce, the newly created thing that's under the governor's control, has most of the Board of Education's former powers like standardized testing, school funding models, creating learning standards, and distributing private school scholarships. And there is a lawsuit that says the Constitution vests the power in the board that the, that the legislature could, shouldn't have been able to take that away. We'll have to see how that ends. This, this always struck me as mean. Yes. It, it's not just they took their power, but now let's continue to squeeze them by shoving them into a suburb or forcing them to move. And nobody's ever really stood up and explained why. I mean, I think the board is raising legitimate questions about what's going on. I here. know that you have reporters uh, here at the Plain Dealer in Cleveland.com looking into that, asking the DEW and DeWine, what is their rationale for the move? Because we haven't heard one so far. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to keep asking. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, we've been wondering what the Women's Commission is that Justin Bibb announced and what it will actually do. We finally know at least who is on it. Yeah, the, What's the new development? The, the stated purpose for this commission was to advocate for programs and legislation intended to improve outcomes for black women and girls by addressing systemic inequalities and structural ob obstacles that lead to poor outcomes. Mayor Bibb and Councilwoman Stephanie House-Jones had championed this and council authorized its creation back in 2022, but then it kind of sat on the shelf for a while. It's, it's kind of, I mean, it's unclear why it was delayed this long, but there were calls last year to put more money toward the work that the commission was going to do. Could that be you know, the reason? Could that have been the sticking point? We're not quite sure. But finally, Bibb has sworn in nine of the 14 committee members last week, though there are still five vacancies. Those slots are expected to be filled after the new members have a chance to, to recommend uh, additional members for Bibb and council consideration. 
the, the chair of the commission is Catherine M. Hall, the vice president of diversity and inclusion at Jack Entertainment. House Jones is also one of the members, and others come from local health systems, faith communities, grassroots organizations, and other fields. It's a, it's a pretty strong list. Yeah, I'm still, I guess the proof will be in the pudding, right? We'll, we'll see what it actually does, because I'm still unclear as exactly what he's looking for here. I, I have a lot more definition about his children's committee than I do for this one. I just don't think this one has been as, as concrete. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, the the point is that they would, if there are policy recommendations or legislation that could benefit um, women and girls in the community, they would put these forward. So we'll see what they what they come up with. I mean, once it's once it's been submitted, my feeling is they're they're not going to just uh, accept. You know, they're not going to let let council put it put it on the shelf. You know what I mean? It's it's gonna there's going to have to be some resolution. This is a pretty strong list. Of, uh, of women who've been appointed to this body. So I'm curious to see how they handle any of the recommendations that come out of it. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Chief politics writer Andrew Tobias asks whether the Republican primary for Senate is pretty much done with Donald Trump having endorsed someone or what it's the answer. I, we won't know till it's over, right? We won't know till we vote, but it's been pretty boring so far. And what Andrew is exploring is that Trump's endorsement decided the 2022 election, basically handed it to J.D. Vance. Since Trump already endorsed Bernie Moreno, there's nothing to see here, and it's been decided. But there's been limited public polling, and that polling shows a, a tight race. One recent poll found that 42% of voters were undecided, and that Moreno and LaRose were in a statistical tie for first place with Dolan not far behind. Moreno did get a big jump from Trump's endorsement, because don't you know... Donald Trump loves Bernie Marino, in case you haven't seen that commercial a thousand times already. So and he's gotten a bunch of endorsements from county Republican parties, GOP elected officials. Attorney General Dave Yost endorsed mm-hmm. him. And he's got the endorsement of the Club for Growth, the deep pocketed anti-tax group that sometimes competes with Trump in the primary. So they started airing ads supporting him. The chairman of the Putnam County Republican Party told Andrew that there doesn't seem to be a lot of head-to-head going on right now, and that's the most surprising thing about the primary so far. Huh. I, I, I've been waiting for some fire and brimstone because it was supposed to be heated, and Matt Dolan does have some real money, but I guess we're just not seeing well, that. No, yeah. He has unlimited campaign finances that the other ones don't have. But I'm surprised how well LaRose is hanging in there considering issue one last year, the, the first issue one in August, and the fact that he didn't get that endorsement that, you know, he basically kowtowed for and is joining in with lawsuits so that Trump can be on the ballot in all 50 states. I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to tomorrow because we're having the endorsement interview for the Republican Senate race, although Frank LaRose has declined to uh, participate. But I have a lot of questions for Bernie Moreno because his campaign plank is pretty thin. I hate to disappoint you. He's not going to be there. Um, He he tried to violate our rules. He, He we send out a note saying we record these. And his campaign sent a note in saying, I want to be able to record it too, which that's fine. But it, we would only approve that on the condition they not release anything before our endorsement comes out. They refuse oh. to do that. So I suspect that what they were trying to do is sandbag us yeah. a little bit. 
um, you know, to, to, to you know, in case, figuring he probably won't get the endorsement that they would take excerpts out and say, look how biased they are mm-hmm. against me or something. So he won't play by the rules. Well, you got to play by the rules or you're not welcome. So uh, uh, Elizabeth Sullivan, our director of opinion, was letting them know that under those terms that he would not be welcome. So it'll just be Matt Dolan, I suspect. Oh, well, because Ber- Bernie Moreno has no campaign platform other than going after liberal nut jobs and rhinos, as his latest TV commercial said. Yeah, I suspect that's one of the reasons that they're playing games with the rules. I don't think he wants to appear and answer tough questions. Uh, and so that's why this came down that way. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This seems a bit like the definition of disgrace to me, Lisa. Is Cleveland really tearing down a building owned by the Cuyahoga County Council president? It looks that way, although they're going to bill him for the de- the demolition. So the city of Cleveland is de- demolishing this building at 8637 Buckeye Road at Opportunity Corridor, which is owned by County Council President Pernell Jones. Jones bought this building back in 2008 via his funeral home business. It was condemned in 2021. It was a former theater and dance hall. Last month, the City Planning Commission delayed demolition until they got a signed agreement from Jones promising to reimburse the city for the costs, but we're unsure if that was ever received. Uh, city spokeswoman Marie Zikafu says the city is fronting the cost and they will build Jones and they will send it to a collections firm if it goes unpaid. The estimated cost for the demolition is about $106,000. Have we heard anything from Jones about this? I would think he'd be hugely embarrassed by this. I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead, you, you would know, Layla. No, no. I mean, he's, he has been communicating with uh, Lucas DiPrilli in text messages, basically, and saying things like, you know, it's, it's my intention to, uh, uh, you know, to make sure that, the, that this, this property receive, you know, is used in the highest and best way for the public, you know, stuff like that. Um, he's not really taking ownership of what he, of the blight he contributed to here. It's it- terrible. And, and knowing that they're, the city's going to demolish it, why wouldn't he just arrange to do it and avoid this kind of, you know, blotch on his reputation? He seems like he's, cre- you know, like you just said, contributing to blight. Why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you take responsibility and, and get ahead of the city on something well, like he's, this? He's asking the property's currently listed for sale on several real estate websites for $745,000. When he bought it back in 2008, it was only $118, so $118,000. So he's going to profit either way. That's a prime piece of land at the corner of Buckeye and Opportunity Corridor. So he should have plenty of money to pay it back. Here's the thing. Chris, it's a shame about Chris, how the long have they been? How long was Opportunity Corridor a concept? How long? How long did well, they start I mean, talking? We started talking about it in the early aughts. Okay, I mean, this goes back to the very beginning when Frank Jackson was still council president. I think is when it first. So came that's up. when they started talking about it. He acquired this property in the late aughts and sat on it for 15 years, expecting that that would become a, a, a very you know lucrative sale one day, mm-hmm. did nothing to it. Mm-hmm. I'm astounded he has stayed out of housing court. How, how, how has he not been, has he not been uh, cited by the city? We're, we're going to find out why. Well, and back then you could have saved it. It was, it, it was a very imposing and, and striking building, and it's a shame that it's, it's coming down. It had some decent qualities to it, and now it's going to be dust. So, 
It'd be interesting to see how long it takes them to pay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The head of Nikolai Tesla disappeared from a statue in the Serbian Cultural Garden in Cleveland a decade ago. Layla, what's the story behind the apparent solving of this mysterious theft? This is a fascinating tale here brought to us by reporter Corey Schaefer. Backstory is that sculptor Matthew Lewis Rebrovich had crafted a bust of famed Serbian inventor Nikola Tesla and gifted it to the Serbian Cultural Garden when it was dedicated in 2008. That bust vanished without a trace in 2014, just a couple months after Rebrovich's death. The Serbian Cultural Garden did buy a replacement statue of Tesla that has been on the pedestal since 2017. Then fast forward to this past weekend when Rebrovich's son, Lou Rebrovich, typed his name into Google. He was trying to connect with some long-lost relatives. You know, he's in retirement, just sort of Googling around. And he struck upon a listing on an auction site. And he recognized it immediately as the bust of Tesla that his father had created. The listing was on liveauctioneers.com. It said, bronze bust of male figure signed M.L. Rebrovich. And the active bid was $50. <laughs> so Rebrovich and his, and his wife spent the past few days trying to get in touch with someone from live auctions and from the, ca- the gallery that listed the bust for auction, Premier Ga- Art Gallery in Chesterland. But they've gotten no response so far. Cleveland.com has also tried. Corey reached out to Cleveland police to check in on the investigation into the statue's disappearance. So it seems at least part of this mystery is solved and that the statue is no longer missing. But who took it? Where has it been for the past decade? And how did it end up where it is today? Those are still the unanswered questions for this family. It would be great if finding it, you could trace backwards to see who took it. Uh, This has happened in the cultural gardens on occasion. And it's a shame, right? Because we all are proud that we have this wonderful feature in Cleveland and that people go in and try to do it. I I would have expected this would have gone for scrap. So the fact that it's still out there is good news. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think the family and and also the, the, the folks who run the cultural garden were pretty excited to find it again. But again, those questions need to be answered so they can get to the bottom of what happened to this thing years ago. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The FBI says a Holmes County man fell prey to a cryptocurrency scam that cost him $1.3 million. But how much responsibility does the victim have after he lost some of the money by dropping it off with a courier in a Lowe's parking lot? Laura, wouldn't that be a red flag for most investors? I think there are a lot of red flags with this story. And I wonder how you have $1.3 million in cash to drop off in a parking lot anyway. But this is a 68-year-old man from Holmesville. He believed his cryptocurrency investment ballooned to $15 million. But he never had an investment. He was just dropping money off in a parking lot. And they've arrested someone named Lynn Kai from New York. FBI agents arrested this person accused of conspiracy to commit money laundering, but they don't seem to know who they were working for, just that they got paid $2,000 every time they picked up a drop and dropped it off. So what happened is there was a Facebook message about this guy's interested hunting, and the two stuck up a chat about this guy's, the Holmesville man's desire to hunt wild animals in Africa. The messenger said there was an investment opportunity that would allow him to do so. So to download this cryptocurrency app, it appeared to be the uh, Indonesia-based company Indodax, but the app displayed the name Indodada and then hyphen X. So I guess 
I don't know what this app had to do with it if you're just dropping money off, but he thought that if he dropped money off with this courier in the Lowe's parking lot, it would somehow turn into cryptocurrency that he was investing and that that would get him to Africa to hunt wild animals. I know, just the idea of dropping it off at the Lowe's parking lot. I would think most people go, huh, something isn't right about this. And, and it's a lot of money. I mean, he ended up losing quite a because he did it three one. times. <laughs> he dropped off $400,000 at a time in cash. And, you know, with $1.3 million, you could probably afford to go to Africa to do your hunting. I don't yeah. know why you needed more, but it's a strange, strange story. It seems like the, the number of scams that are coming out this year are up. We There have been all sorts of warnings coming out from governments saying, hey, there's a new level of scams targeting Michigan and Ohio be wary. And I know stuff has been rolling in through the email that has been alarming. It almost looks like it's real and you have to constantly do a gut check to say, wait, what's going on? Um, so really got to watch the scammers. They're trying to take all our money. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Tuesday episode. Thank you, Lisa, Laura, and Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Wednesday. <laughs>